You're listening to TIP. On today's episode, I sit down with Michael Wise, the founder and president of Yield Street, which is a platform that serves up offerings in alternative asset classes. In this episode, we cover why you should consider diversifying into alternative assets, how these investments have long been inaccessible for retail investors, and how Yield Street is changing that, deep dives into legal, aviation, commercial real estate, and much, much more. But be sure to stick around for the last piece where Michael breaks down how he grew Yield Street into a company with over 100 employees and his advice for aspiring entrepreneurs. It is brilliant. This was an extremely educational conversation for me. I learned a ton and I think you will as well. So without further ado, please enjoy this discussion with Michael Wise. You are listening to The Investor's Podcast, where we study the financial markets and read the books that influence self-made billionaires the most. We keep you informed and prepared for the unexpected. Welcome to The Investor's Podcast. I'm your host, Trey Lockerbie. And today, I am pleased to have with me Michael Wise from Yield Street. Welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me, Trey. I'm so excited to have you on the show because I just learned about Yield Street very recently and it really caught my attention, mainly because I've had a real interest in alternative investments as of late and I have noticed that it's very hard to source them. So, before we get into all of that, I just want to take a moment and hear a little bit more about your journey, which seems to be mostly in finance, a lot in real estate and hedge funds and now this which is obviously an entrepreneurial endeavor. So there's a lot, I'm sure, going on there. But just kind of what culminated in founding Yield Street for you? What drove you to create a platform focused solely on alternative assets? That's a great question. So listen, I have a, I have a personal story that's very much behind the founding of Yield Street that, that I don't lose sight of, and I think it's important to. And so I feel the same as for my co-founder, Melind. We really both went on this journey to build Yield Street because we felt that there was the same problem coming from our own experiences, right? And, and what it really comes down to is that access to and distribution of institutional quality alternatives is fundamentally broken. And the reason that was important to us is because we couldn't access them and our families and friends couldn't access the right investment portfolio. And so you can't get ahead in life. And so what we got really passionate about was, hey, if we could fractionalize access to institutional quality investments, then we can help narrow the income and opportunity gap. What are those assets that you're speaking about? I think you got to really take a step back and you got to say, hey, what are you trying to achieve? Why is it important? What are the bigger tailwinds in the market that are sort of driving this idea? Right. And I think that's really the right lens to look at what we do through. Because as a business and as an early stage high growth business, we're rapidly evolving. And so our conversation today can be different in six months or in a year. If you don't understand what's really under the hood and what, what we're doing and why. So if you want, you know, happy to, to jump into a bigger story and sort of, sort of drive back in. Looks like you founded Yield Street back in 2014. So I'm kind of curious to hear about what the original idea was, how it's evolved since then. You said it kind of can change on a dime depending on the time of day or week. So yeah, definitely give us as much detail on that as possible. So listen, let's zoom out, right? Why are we building Yield Street? Our mission is to help millions of people get on a road to financial independence. And the reason we're doing that is because, like I just mentioned, the access to and distribution of alts is broken. Why is that important? Like, What's really behind it? So let's look at a couple of things going on in the market. 
One, if you follow smart money, so you look at like endowments and pensions, et cetera, they have up to 60% of their allocation in alts. You look at retail investors, we're still at about 6%. And so like you need to look in the mirror and, and allow yourself to be vulnerable and say, hold up. So you got smart money, paid the most, has the biggest pocket of cash, like smart people targeting real returns. Where are they going? Wait, they're moving this much of their portfolio into alts? Why? And wait, why am I not following them? And so that triggers an initial question that's really important. When you really understand it, there's two parts of the answer. One is why are they doing it? And two, why can I? Why are they doing it? It's because the 60-40 model is broken. Bonds, debt yields are in the ground. You're not generating your fixed income allocation that our parents taught us to or that our school taught us to. Equities are highly volatile. It's a totally different experience. There are less companies public. So that 60-40 model that we were used to isn't working. And so we need to modernize our portfolios. Smart money got there first. And it's time for us to really wake up and say like, hey, how do I get ahead? I'm living longer. I'm trying to have more of a better quality of life. Like, Where does the rubber meet the road? How am I going to be able to generate enough income and growth to support that? Okay. So now I'm Michael. I'm ready to go in. I want to follow the alts movement. Okay. How do I get it? You couldn't, right? So there are structural limitations to accessing these investments. If you wanted to invest, say, in a partnership that you know was buying a hundred million dollar piece of property or a company, like where are you putting your ten thousand dollars? Like no one's taking us out for dinner for ten grand. And so the question became like, how do we solve for this? Right? Like there's there's a much bigger thing going on here. Now looking from a different lens, we're watching this massive shift, a generational shift of wealth from baby boomers to the next generation, and you have to question like. Do we behave the same way our parents do? Like, do I want to go out golfing with a financial advisor? Like, emphatically, no. Like, I'm not interested. I don't want to do that. So, the experience that I want to have with my money and the investments that I want to be able to access are fundamentally different than what the industry has been doing for all too long. And so, Yield Street's question that we started with in 2015 and that we ultimately want to solve for is what is that experience going to look like? How do we create the like billionaire digital private bank experience and deliver that to the masses through technology? The first step is by helping you make money, is by driving value to your pocket. So it's by saying, hey, the first leg we're going to focus on is the invest leg. Let's get the right investments. Let's get the right access. Let's get into curated and institutional quality investments and bring them to millions of people and change the trajectory of their financial future. And that's sort of how we got to where we are in thinking through how, how you build that business. That sounds like quite an undertaking. So what was the first <laughs> step for you? So that's, that's a great conversation around like, hey, how do you take a dream and a vision and build a business, right? And it's about execution. It's about sort of allowing your mind on one side to think outside the system, outside your own limitations that you've created to like envision and imagine something huge but then go back into your corner and say, okay, let's start to execute. And so how that started for us was in two sectors. It was in real estate and it was in legal finance. And there were two areas that we knew we had expertise in, that we felt comfortable we could generate significant origination and volume in, and we could deliver strong returns and a total experience to the investors. And so that's where we started. Since then, we've distributed almost $2 billion of investments across asset classes like real estate, single family rentals. We bought the largest art finance business from Carlisle to fractionalize like art lending, shipping, legal finance, consumer finance, small business financing. We took a theme on like rebuilding America coming out of COVID. Like how do we support those small businesses? And 
third-party hedge funds and private equity funds, like, hey, how do we access not just good investment opportunities, but how do we access like most coveted managers in the world? So when you look back now, you can have a portfolio that's really healthy from a diversification perspective, return perspective, duration perspective, across a whole spectrum of alternative investments. Okay. So you came from the finance world though. Was it as easy as, hey, I have this idea. I'm going to call up my buddy. He's going to give me 20 million bucks to get started. Or what was the origination like getting the business off the ground for you? Was it as easy as that? I would say it was probably the exact converse outcome, right? So yeah, it was definitely not easy. Nothing is. But I think that's the joy you take and the fun you take. I think the key is you got to keep your head buried and just focused on your goal. And then one day you wake up and you realize how hard you had to fight through it. And so um, I think that it's about building trust and credibility, both with your partners on the origination side and your customers on the investor side. That's, that's really at the essence of how you want to interact with any company. And even more so in an organization like Yield Street that's driving, you know, how do I take dollars from your pocket to put into investments? And so what we needed to do was establish a level of trust with both sides of the house. And we had to be able to show that we we're going to execute and that we had a force behind us and that we're prepared to do it. I think that was one. Two is on the origination side of the business, people wanted to say, to make sure that, hey, these aren't like two pine sky founders. They actually have a deep understanding of our needs, of our business, of the finance side, of the risk side, of the investment side. And they're building this thing for the right reasons. And so I think that when you look back at our partnership with Melinda and I, my background is really all on the investment side. And Melinda's background is more on, hey, how do I use technology and data to solve huge problems. And so when you put the two of us together, it became a really, really powerful duo to go to both sides and say, we understand, we know we're doing it for the right reasons. But more importantly, like here's exactly how we're going to get there. You kind of mentioned that your MVP, right, your minimum viable product was around real estate and legal. And the legal side, I'm really curious about. I saw this on your website, these offerings can you give us an example of what a deal like that in that space looks like? So fun fact, I was one of the first people in the US to really institutionally invest in litigation finance starting back in uh, probably around 2009. I think it was like um, maybe three or four of us institutionally who were out there. And so I have a long and, and passionate history in uh, putting out you know, nearly a billion dollars in litigation finance. There are different types of ways to invest in the legal industry. And I'll give you a couple of them high level. So one is there are contingency law firms, which essentially are law firms that take on cases. And the way they would get paid is based on the success that they have. So they can try you know, a case for 10 years, a person got hit by a car and make no money until they get a settlement for a client. So that's number one. In those situations, these people need to find a way to manage the cash flow of their law firms because otherwise they're going to run out of money if they take on too many cases and they can't manage that at different times. That's number one. Number two is the individual that that lawyer is representing. So if God forbid someone you know got hit by a car, he or she is out of work, they can't get paid, they can't function, et cetera, they need some cash flow. And so it's hard for them to go to a bank and borrow it because they don't have any assets. And most people would say, well, hey, your lawsuit's not like an asset. How do we value it? Like we're not going to lend against you. So that's the second. The third is a company. So a company says, my partner and I have a dispute and you know, I think this lawsuit's worth $50 million. I need to borrow five to pay my lawyers. I need to borrow to live. I need to borrow to grow my business, whatever the case is. Essentially, do you want to help me bring my case forward and ultimately get to that resolution? And the fourth is 
settlements or judgments or sort of different types of situations like that, where you could think about, you know, Visa MasterCard cases were big in the news for a while. There were all these different cases all around the world where merchants wanted to, you know, get some money back from Visa and MasterCard. So there's an opportunity to buy those claims at scale. There's many different ways that you could participate in sort of litigation risk that has really evolved into being an asset class in and of its own. And because in some ways it's new and there's less capital chasing it than there is maybe in real estate, the return profiles continue to be really interesting. And so that's what we brought to market for the first time really to retail investors. Maybe give us an idea of what those returns look like. And I'm curious about the product itself. Are you packaging together a lot of these cases into one vehicle? Or is it case by case that someone like me would be funding that? Each product that we went through poses in many ways a different level of risk. So let's go with like the highest risk. The one that we spoke about where there's like an individual who got hurt and needs to borrow money, like the outcome there is very binary. It's one person, it's one case. And so the way we have historically offered those is by aggregating like hundreds of those examples into one fund. And so like the average funding, and don't quote me because I haven't looked at it in a while, but I think the average funding was like $4,700, $4,800 to a person in that situation. And so you'll have five, six, 700 of those opportunities in a particular fund. And so your risk of loss is really attractive because you're highly diversified. And historically, I think by now you probably have almost 20 years of data since this business started that you can really understand how you're going to perform. So that's like a portfolio. The other side of the risk is like settled case financing. So a person settles their case and you know the city of New York has 90 days to pay them from the settlement. And so at that point, you're really simply taking New York City credit risk for 90 days. The person, it's pre-holidays. They want to get, you know, they settled their big case for 10 million. They want to get 2 million now for whatever reasons. So yeah, you would invest in a single offering there with a pretty low risk, probably make around, you know, eight, nine percent, and you'd feel really good about it. In between is like the single cases, the company cases, where you want to put together like a, you know, a portfolio of maybe 10, 20 claims from different companies so that you have some diversification, but you still have some upside. Maybe you want to try to achieve high teens, low 20s type of returns on a portfolio basis. And so you'll see those different types of offerings available. You'll see a legal finance fund, you'll see a consumer fund, you'll see a single case settled fund. And so there's different types of products that we curate to help people access a nice, healthy portfolio across the litigation spectrum. Is Yield Street underwriting these in-house or how are you evaluating these deals? So that's a great question. For us across the board, the way we think about Yield Street is not about building a digital hedge fund, but it's about connecting what we believe are some really great opportunities and great managers to a larger audience of people who are seeking to invest. And so the difference is instead of us going out and finding Sally who got injured and trying to get 500 of them to put in a, in a deal, we look for some of the leading consumer litigation finance companies and say, hey, here's our criteria. Here's what we care about. Here's the risk profile. You're going to have to go through a rigorous approval process, but if you could deliver this, we're going to fund it. And then we sit with about $300 plus million of access to cash as a warehouse. We actually fund the transaction before we ever sell it. And then we go to our audience and say, hey, this is the criteria. This is vetted by this company. This is what we're offering. And so for me, it's really about using technology and data on a platform to create a curated experience where you can access all different types of investments from leading managers. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. 
The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, do you ever wonder how investors like Peter Thiel have Roth IRAs worth billions? Many do more than just save a portion of their income, invest it in the stock market, and cross their fingers and hope it grows enough to retire on. The secret is they use something called a self-directed IRA, which has all the tax advantages we love, but with a twist. Instead of being stuck with stocks, bonds, and cookie cutter options, a self-directed IRA with New Direction Trust Company allows you to invest your retirement savings in what you know and what you're passionate about. From real estate to startups to gold and silver, there are nearly unlimited investment options. You could even finance and set the terms of a loan. You name it, NDTCO will help you fund it. We're not saying you'll be the next Peter Thiel, but we're not not saying that either. Because his secrets are now your secrets. Check out New Direction Trust Company and self-directed IRAs today at NDTCO.com and unlock the potential of your retirement savings. That's NDTCO.com. The dream of owning a vacation home can be daunting. From finding the best guests, to the maintenance, to organizing the cleaners after every guest day. With Vacasa, they make that dream into a reality. As a full-service vacation home management company with vacation homes in key destinations across the U.S., they know how to make owning a vacation home easy and profitable. On top of proactive property maintenance visits by professional local teams, a data-driven booking platform, and around-the-clock support, Homeowners earn on average 20% or more revenue from their vacation homes. Vacasa makes vacation home ownership easy. If you're looking to make more from your vacation home by doing less, partner with Vacasa at vacasa.com. That's vacasa.com to get started on your dream of owning a vacation home. All right, back to the show. So in that case, are you funding it? getting reimbursed by someone like me as a customer and then promising me a certain yield and you're capturing the difference or are you just taking a fee on whatever the final outcome is? We're generally taking a management fee on the assets under management. That's generally our model. But if you go to any particular investment, you'll see specifically exactly the fees by that investment. Got it. You know, I recently read that Yield Street just raised something like $100 million, which is incredible. I think it was your Series C. How much money has been raised to date? And is it going to what you just described as far as funding these deals off your balance sheet or operational costs? Or what does a typical funding look like for you? What does the money typically go towards? Great question. 
listen, it's a huge milestone for us and it's super exciting. So thank you for, for calling that out and recognizing that. For us, this particular race is like super specific on sort of use of proceeds and exactly what we want to do with it. If, if you couldn't tell, we're pretty relentless and, and focused. And so for us, over the last number of years, we've really focused on building out this just incredible technology and distribution engine. And on the other hand, really solving for a need that this audience has in how do we find a better experience with our money. And so when you look at that, we've built the foundation for that experience by providing multiple types of investment opportunities, but we've never really focused on huge scale, right? I think like at our peak, we were spending, you know, I don't know, seven, dollars $800,000 a month in marketing. For an organization of our size, we should really step that up. And so for us here at Yield Street, it's really about increasing the user growth so that we can actually live to our mission, which is helping millions of people really get into a better place financially. So that's one. Two is really identifying the best talent that we can for Yield Street. If you have the ambitions that myself and Melinda and the management team have, you need to be surrounded by some amazing people. So let's continue to hire great people. Three is similarly focusing on the origination side. Let's continue to develop investment products and expand our investment universe. And lastly, it's thinking about strategic M&A and really focusing on bringing the right components into the broader Yield Street family to make sure that we could honor the promise of really, really building out you know, sort of the future of how you interact with your money, that digital private bank experience. Got it. So one of the reasons I got so interested in alternative assets is Ray Dalio is famous for saying that the holy grail of investing is finding basically 15 uncorrelated bets. And we had someone from Bridgewater on the show fairly recently, and they said that that was pretty much impossible for the retail investor. Really, for the retail investor currently, there's only about four. So if you talk about equities, bonds, short and long term, and something like gold, maybe, those are the most easily accessible. So that's only about four. I'm seeing eight asset classes on your website. So you mentioned art, aviation, commercial, consumer, legal, marine, multi-asset funds, and real estate. So that gets you, you know, say to 12, we're getting a lot closer. Maybe talk to us a little bit about those eight that you guys represent and focus on and the correlation between them and something like the stock market. I think what you heard from, from Ray and, and your conversation with Bridgewater are not necessarily mutually exclusive. I think um, there are other books that talk about similar types of investing. So if you think about like 100 Bagger or The Philosophy of Money or some of the other really great books, they, they touch on like two major themes. One is patience. Right. And so being a trader and being an investor are two very, very different functions. And you need to be cognizant of that. And so, you know, they'll refer to examples like Amazon dropped, you know, a half a dozen or more times more than 60% before it started really taking off. And the point is that if you fundamentally believe in a company or you fundamentally believe in a strategy, so for example, like we could talk about housing in the US as an investment strategy and like why I fundamentally believe in that, irrespective of where home prices might go on a year over year basis, more like as a decade, what, what that means to us. I think like that's the theme that Ray is talking about is like understanding and identifying particular themes that you want to go long on and stay disciplined on. The reason that the second person probably said, or one of the reasons the second person probably said it's impossible is because most of us have jobs. And so like, where are we going to actually find the time to identify what those opportunities are and stick to them? And so the question that I always think about is like, hey, on a very basic level, 
you go to a hotel and there's housekeeping service, you go to a, ho- a restaurant, there's a waiter. So like we've gotten really good, at least in America, at employing people to do things that we don't want to do, whether it's as simple as babysitting or housekeeping or anything else. And so just like I would pay someone to watch my kid if I wanted to go out on a date one night, I would pay someone to find those opportunities that like the rays of the world talk about. And in many ways, like that's how I think about Yield Street. What Yield Street is not is eBay. Like it's not a million companies just like throwing their different opportunities on this platform. And it's like buyer beware, go figure it out. It's on you. Like we just provide technology. And there's a place for that in this world for the people that want to go pick that. That's not what I think is important to me. What Yield Street is saying is like, hey, we understand how complex that world is. We think what's a better experience is where you get to pick thematically or a narrative of where you want to be. And I'll explain that in a second. But you want someone to do the curation for you and say, hey, like here are three opportunities. So for example, if you wanted to be invested in venture, the ideal would be like, hey, can I get access to Sequoia and Dreesen DST and like, you know, pick your your next one. It's not like, can you show me 700 new startups that might be cool? Like that, no, I'm not, I don't have time. I'm not interested. I don't even know how to underwrite them, right? But like, I know that if you look at the last decade of wealth creation, a tremendous amount has come from startups. I know that technology is a huge disruptor. So I believe that there's value there. I know, I know, I know. And for those reasons, I want to be here. And so when you think of Yieldstream, you look at the asset classes that we're, that we're in, we're saying like, hey, as a CIO, my job is to recognize that I have an audience of hundreds of thousands of people and growing that are looking to really invest their portfolio in a smart and diversified way. And so like Michael and Yield Street team, can you bring me a few options in each different part of the risk bucket? Like, give me a little real estate, show me some art, show me some shipping, et cetera. Can you help find the right prospects for me? And then yes, I'll make the decision on what I want to invest in. And so that's really how I think of Yield Street. And I think like, in your point about like Ray and this other person, like maybe that's where we sort of thread the needle in the middle there. Seems like it. Speaking of art that you just mentioned, I'm really curious about that. We, we had Scott Lynn on from Masterworks recently as well, and he was introducing us to this idea of fractionalized shares in art, but it sounded almost like, you know, it's basically monetizing it by almost like an IPO in some, in some cases, right, on their platform. Does Yield Street work in a similar way where they're basically fractionalizing shares on the website, and are you pre-funding the art as well off your balance sheet? Yeah. I mean, that's exactly what we started. I think in many ways, we're the pioneers of that. We funded $2 billion in investments before we've ever sold them. So we stand behind them in that sense. And we're fractionalizing access to you know, essentially every asset that we, that we provide access to. Athena is the largest privately held art finance company in the world. And what Athena's business model is to provide a financing solution for blue chip fine art. So if you are an individual or a dealer or an auction house and you had a $10 million piece of art, it hasn't been treated like a true financial asset by anybody else. And so we said, why can't you borrow 5 million against it? Just like you would if it was a home or a building. And so Athena really pioneered that outside of, you know, Sotheby's and Christie's offer some financing solutions. Like if you promise them and, you know, sort of like agree to sell your art through them. But what about if like, you don't want to sell it, you just want to buy two pieces instead of one, or you want to use $5 million to, you know, invest in your business. And so really creating an asset class and liquidity out of fine art is what Athena started their business for. 
And we ultimately, as after they grow after a number of years, we bought it for about 170 million from Carlisle. And we grew that over at Yield Street. What was exciting to me was, hey, for the first time, we can help retail investors get access to this product that only Carlisle and other types of major institutions had had before. Another asset class on your website I'm really curious about is the aviation piece. Give us an example of how that works. So um, that's actually much more common than people know. It was also very much a a post-COVID play and sort of betting on America and betting on, you know, people coming back, which has actually worked out far faster than we expected. I think, you know, the industry sort of felt that the median comeback would be 2023. I think if you walk into an airport today, you probably will forget that COVID existed. That's how packed it is, right? Play is very simple. So airlines, commercial airlines, people think they own all the planes. They don't. They often have investors own the planes like private equity funds, and then they lease them back from you. So similar to taking like a lease on a building, like, hey, Michael, you own 100,000 feet. I'll ground lease the building back from you for 20 years. And so they'll often do it on like seven to 10 year stints where American Airlines will say like, hey, I need this many planes of this type. I don't want to clutter up my balance sheet by owning too many. You own them and I'll pay you a lease rate on those planes. And so what became even more interesting now in COVID was they still owned about 50% of the fleet. That's kind of how it breaks out, like 50-50, because they, they want to own some of it. And they're like, I need some cash. Like COVID just hit, everything's changing. I need to sell planes. I need to raise cash. But the securitization market was closed. And so it became a really interesting opportunity to quickly invest and be a liquidity solution for the major airlines and to provide sort of that sale leaseback strategy. And again, like your biggest players of the world, you name like, you know, $500 billion asset manager and up, they probably have an aviation strategy. And so giving people access to this is super cool. Planes have like multiple components that make them super valuable, which is a whole nother discussion. Like the engines have sort of their own life to them. So you, you move engines around planes all the time. It's not, it's not like a car where like you try to keep your engine. So you need like engine maintenance. They won't take a plane out of service, take the engine out. You get another engine, you put it on that plane while the, while the other one's being serviced. And so the engines actually have tremendous, tremendous value, especially when they're maintained the right way. So that's like component number one. Component number two is like the plane itself has a ton of value. And as it's age more, the value of the plane declines, which is separate from the engine cases. Then the last piece is like the raw material, the like aluminum has its own value. And so there's, there's never going to be a $1 value because the raw material to just literally go get money for the aluminum is always going to be something. And so like, that's your last stop. But um, what's interesting about planes is that, and the strategy around planes is, well, in many ways, it's like a private equity strategy. It also has cash flow because you're getting lease payments right away. So it has a current coupon component to it with a pop over time. And then when you think about COVID, when cash was tight in the beginning, so the value of the plane goes down because there aren't as many people ready to pay for it, right? So it's a situational distress, not an asset level distress. So you're buying a $10 million plane for, let's say, seven or whatever, eight. Now the plane's back to being worth 10 or 11. And so you have your cash flow coming in, but you bought it right, you're going to get a pop one day. And because it's not depreciating as fast as it otherwise would have when you bought it at a higher price. So what is the yield kind of expectation for something like that from Yield Street? So my feeling, and this is like literally a personal feeling, so you can't, uh, you can't hold me to this. I think that the yields that are projected for aviation strategies by sort of the, the major players are pretty conservative. Like I think a lot of people are like, hey, we're going to do like 11, 12. My guess is with the recovery moving this fast, they're going to do much better than that. 
much better. I'm curious, is the consumer piece just focused on supply chain and AP, AR financing? Talk us a little bit about what, what's available on Yield Street on the consumer section. So um, supply chain financing, I would say, is more on like the commercial finance section. So like, hey, you know, you have these different issues in a supply chain at any time, especially now. So there's always interesting financing opportunities. The consumer stuff that we find ourselves in are usually like specialized consumer products that are brought to us by like specific consumer lenders. So one that comes to mind is like, we did a point of sale financing solution for motorcycle dealerships. So there's a whole sort of historical trend that goes back, you know, decades around loyalty that people have to their bikes. And it's sort of like getting car financing, but it's just less prevalent in bikes. So that would be one. Another one is we did like exotic car leasing. So, you know, different people have different priorities and some people love having a nice exotic car, but they may not have the best credit for it. And so I guess getting approved for a Lambo or a Ferrari is, is harder than they think. And so there's solutions there. And then there's like the opposite side of the spectrum, which is like more in the subprime space where people need access to emergency cash that in many ways has dried up over the years as like sort of the local bank model of providing like, you know, the, the single mom with two jobs and extra loan just doesn't kind of exist. And so Yield Street steps in when it can find the right partner to provide those types of loans to people. And so we may find ourselves as a $20 million investor in a $100 million financing for a consumer lending business. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain, from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models. So no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Hey guys, it's Clay Fink here, host of We Study Billionaires. Want to hear one of my favorite sounds? Here it is. That's the sound I hear when I'm learning a new language with Babbel. And if you want to learn a new language this year, I guarantee it'll be one of your favorite sounds too. Babbel is a science-backed language learning app that actually works. Their quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. I love Babbel because it makes it so easy for me to speak Spanish while ordering food, asking for directions, or just having basic conversations without needing the help of my phone. It's no wonder that Babbel has sold over 16 million subscriptions and studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove that Babbel is better. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash WSB. 
That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash W-S-B. Rules and restrictions may apply. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. Given your background in commercial real estate, especially, what's your take now that we're recovering through COVID? There was a period there at least where I think people were pretty bearish on commercial real estate, generally speaking, because no one knew when tenants were coming back, where people were going back to their offices, if you even need offices, et cetera. What's the general take on commercial real estate today, in your opinion? Listen, I was never bearish on real estate. I was in purgatory, meaning you can't make a credit decision if you don't have the right information to make that decision, right? Then you're making a bet. That I think is different than an investment decision in some cases. And so depending on how you invest, but like for me, I'm making decisions that are ultimately likely to impact many, many, many people as they choose to then invest in those deals. And so I said to the team, like, we're not making a real decision for a couple of weeks here. We need to see how this thing shakes out. I think we kind of purged our pipeline for maybe six weeks, maybe more, maybe eight, just as we got information. I Listen, I think people have different reactions especially in a moment of crisis. And the news cycle always needs to keep moving. So people have to find a narrative to, to talk about or, or a bite to produce. So I think where we were is a lot of unknowns, especially with the election coming in and sort of how things were going to shake out. Today, I think we have a much better understanding of where the market is. The government stimulus really helped a lot. Most importantly, it kept people in balance or in workout with loans as opposed to 08 when everything froze up. And so as lending is continuing to be active and in many ways, even more aggressive, people are able to buy assets at the right values and, you know, and to do well with them. Second is billions, billions of dollars raised for distress and the level of distress didn't show. And so it's keeping asset values propped up. So I think that like broadly around the investing world, when it comes to real estate, I think maybe one trend that was shifting in the opposite direction that had reversed again might be like this huge view of moving into inner cities. And I think that in many ways, the remote work or like the, you know, the WeWork type of model 
was really moving heavily into big cities and providing a solution for major companies to have hubs all around major cities. I think that model is actually going to be more successful now, but not necessarily just in big cities. I think you're seeing people moving out to single family homes. You're seeing people move 30, 40 miles out of the major city, and they may want to have an office near their home. And so I think we all got a little over our skis at how much we want to like abandon suburban lifestyle. Like, you know, everyone's like, oh, mom, dad, why the white picket fence when you could have a studio and a shared kitchen and a shared movie theater, like 72 people. So I'm pretty bullish on real estate generally. I think the office model is going to be interesting. And I, I question it a little bit only because from my experience, at least in a city like New York, you make your money on the 90 to 100% occupancy. Everything below that is really where you're covering your costs. And so like, are we, are we really going to get back to a place where every company is going to be there full time for everyone? Like, I'm not sure about that. In some ways, I believe yes. In other ways, I think about it and I think about the decisions that we made at Yield Street, which is much more of a hybrid model. So three days mandatory in office and the other two days, you know, you can work around and more flexibility around traveling and holidays and vacations and things like that. Just taking into account like, hey, we grew 250% year over year in COVID. It can't be that we can't function outside. You know, we need to sort of recognize that. So I think the office model is interesting. I think industrial is going to keep crushing it pretty much for as long as I can see because last mile delivery and, you know, Amazon online, all that moving. I think that um, single family rental, like I'm very, very long housing in the US. I think you're not going to build enough homes over the next five to seven years to give into the demand that people are looking for. And so, you know, get your hands on investing around homes. I think that owning homes and owning real estate is your best bet to inflationary hedge. We used to do that by like mortgage bonds, but then you took rate risk. So now that there's this whole model of fractional ownership in real estate, you could actually be inflation hedged. To me, I think the biggest question might just be inner city office. Like, you know, is there an oversupply over time? And I think we'll need about you know, 12, 12 months to really see where companies land on, on that policy. So does Yield Street actually offer vehicles around residential real estate? And how, how does that work with the fractional shares? We are pretty active in something called single family rentals, which is SFR. And what we do there is we partner with different folks around the single family rental ecosystem. So for example, we could partner with developers. So someone could have you know land for a thousand lots of land that we're going to partner with them to build those lots and either sell off those homes or turn those homes into a rental community. Or we could partner with people who already own existing homes to generate the cash flow from the renters. We partner with people who build sort of spec houses, like luxury spec houses too. And so again, my view is when you're reading headlines countless times that say there's more mortgage, there's more real estate brokers than real estate available, like you ought to be on the other side of that trade quickly, right? And so you can definitely partake in being you know, a partner in these offerings that, that we have around the residential real estate. So going back to the problem that Yield Street was setting out to solve, it was the access to and distribution of alternative assets that were mostly reserved for people in something like a hedge fund. And to get into a hedge fund, you have to be pretty wealthy typically, right? And so the accreditation piece comes to mind. And I noticed this as part of the initial step on Yield Street. Are you an accredited investor? So first of all, how much does Yield Street vet the customers they're taking on? And what is your general take on accreditation and, and where it might be it be heading? Are, are the regulations loosening up over time? Or are they getting is it getting even harder to access these types of funds outside of Yield Street? So we've built a pretty seamless process around what we call accreditation verification. 
And so if you're an investor and you want to come, you know, join Yield Street and be part of some of those investments, you really want to try and have the most seamless experience, especially when it goes through like, you know, getting improved and setting up an account and verified as accredited. And so I think that I feel pretty confident that we've done a really good job at making that a seamless process. And I would say that our success hopefully demonstrates that people feel that that process is, is easy enough to get through. How do I think about regulation? I think regulation is super important and necessary. At the end of the day, we want to find a way to protect consumers in America. I think that regulation is often reactionary. So something really bad like 08 happens and someone you know advocates for hyper-regulation and we get over-regulated broadly. And then as the years go by, people are like, wait, that wasn't actually as good for me as I thought it was because I could invest in pink sheet stocks, but I can't invest in like a hundred million dollar institutional deal. And so how did this help me? But when you put your mind in the, in the mind of the, the regulator, you're more about like, that's okay as long as I protected you from the 99 other things. So I think regulation is important. I think regulation over time could benefit from being less reactionary and more proactive. I think businesses are always at the forefront of innovation and regulations a couple of years behind. And so like there's this catch up game that the regulators find themselves playing in many ways. That being said, I will say very comfortably that I feel that, especially as it relates to the SEC, that they have recognized a number of years ago, to me, it starts with the Jobs Act, that we could do better and that times are different and technology allows us to, to regulate things the way we need to, to be comfortable, but not in the same way that we had to. So for example, like we could have 20,000 investors in an opportunity now and get the same level of reporting that we would if there were only 50. And so how do we modify the law to like not cap it at 99 investors and have more because we could solve for what we needed? So I would say that regulation is trending more reasonable, I think is the right word to use and to be modernized. I think the Jobs Act was big. I think in March, the recent accreditation definition expansion is important. I think, for example, the Department of Labor talking about allowing people to invest 15% of their IRAs into alts, like we're moving in the right direction, we're trending in the right direction. I think that if I was speaking to myself and like other founders, we as a group could do better about dedicating a little more of our time to, to be with regulators, even though it means that you know, we're not focused on actually growing the business, but really a longer term play, because the incumbents are not going to be the ones to educate the regulators on the innovation that's happening in the ecosystem. It's going to be guys like us. And if we're not willing to dedicate the time, then you know, it's fine for other founders to sort of complain and bitch and moan about regulation, but like someone needs to have a dialogue and explain what we're doing and why it's important to, to modernize themes. But for the investor and the consumer, I think that you know the government is very much trying to look out for you. But I also think that there is clearly a trend to loosening regulation and, and making things more available to, to you, the investor. Well, I noticed on the website that you do offer deals to unaccredited investors that are probably on the smaller side and that there are other investments if you're an accredited investor. So I'm curious if when I'm filling out the survey, let's say you have a high salary and you click that option, but you don't have, let's say, the $5 million family office. What are the levels of accreditation? Are, are you serving up different products based on that survey and, and the level of accreditation? Are the deals different depending on the profile of the customer? There's going to be multiple segments that the SEC uses to define different levels, right? There's non-accredited, there's accredited, there's, let's say, QP, 
qualified purchaser, there's a um, qualified investor, there's a quib, which is like a hundred million dollar net worth. And so the regulators are going to limit what you can sell to whom, or maybe said differently, how you can sell something to whom. And so, for example, there are offerings for accredited and non-accredited investors alike, and that's more around a certain regulatory construct of how investment is sold. And so in that particular offering, what you'll find is it's a diversified fund structure, like a diversified vehicle, where the objective is, hey, if you want to be a passive investor, but you want access to sort of like a Yield Street ETF, almost like here's everything we do, then whatever we can put in, subject to the limitations, we will put in and really give you the opportunity to have an allocation in a vehicle that's going to have exposure to art, real estate, shipping, commercial, consumer, all the stuff we spoke about. And so I would say it's more about how you invest in a particular product than what you could have exposure to, if that makes sense. So that's really interesting to me. I was curious about the funds piece of this and what you offer, because like you said, people are busy. They don't have a lot of time. It's really great. You're offering this spectrum of, of alts. But let's say I just want to put money and say, listen, Michael, I just want you to do this for me. I trust you guys. Let me just put this allocation into this, this fund and leave it alone for a while. What do you offer in that way? So we think about it a little bit, a little bit differently, but along similar lines, which is there are different types of people and people have different desires or different goals and want to invest in different ways. Okay. So let's break down like four user journeys. So one is, hey, I'm really interested and I have the time and I want to be hyperactive in my portfolio. So I enjoy picking a bunch of single offerings to create my own portfolio. Person two says, I really like to be a thematic investor. So I like single family rentals and sort of the, you know, the growth that's seeing and I believe in it long term, or I don't have a way to access legal finance or art or these other things. So I like them all. But I don't have the time or necessarily the interest or expertise to pick individual deals. So what would be greatest for me is if you could have a thematic fund. So Yield Street says, great, we have like the art fund, the legal fund, the real estate fund. And so that gives you the opportunity to be more passive, but be thematic in how you invest. The third type of person is someone who says like, hey, this is all really interesting, but where I want to be as an investor is to be able to invest alongside some really great managers and funds and investors like the Harbor Group or Avenue Capital or the Aviation One or some of the other stuff that's coming out. Like, is there a way for me to invest with Yield Street in potentially exposure to other big managers? So those are like the ones we just mentioned, right? The aviation, et cetera. And the fourth and final one is the person who's like, this is all great. I don't want to do any of what I just said, but I want exposure to the basket of opportunities that Yield Street has fundamentally approved and put on the platform. And so that's going to be that last fund for accredited and non-accredited investors. It's a 40 Act fund where you could make one investment and increase it over time and just keep getting that broad exposure and diversification across the platform to Yield Street. And to me, what's even super interesting about that product is because of the structure of it, it actually has quarterly liquidity. So you can choose you know, how you want to go in and out of that vehicle and not be married to it necessarily as long-term, but still get the exposure that you're looking for in a passive fashion and diversify. Well, that was my next question was around liquidity. So does the term end every quarter and you get paid out your principal and your interest every quarter, and then it's up to you to reinvest in that fund on a quarterly basis or are the terms no. longer? 
No. So the term is much longer, but you have an option to seek liquidity on a quarterly basis subject to, you know, whatever the limitations are, which you'd have to go online and really get educated. But essentially what it means is, is that if I made an investment for X dollars today, that I would be able theoretically to access quarterly liquidity by, by asking for it, by clicking a button. And is there any certain like tax advantage with any of those products with the funds over the individual? Is it all fairly the same, just capital gains? Short answer is yes. There are different advantages for different strategies. I think that's like super technical to get into here. Like which ones have depreciations, which ones don't, K1 versus 1099, how it's passed through, like all that. Those are much more like specific. But I think the overarching point that I would say is what Guild Street is trying to provide is the experience of the private bank to you, which is we know who you are because you're our client. We care about you. We're going to go out and try to find great opportunities that fit what you're looking for, or that at least give you a chance in a curated fashion to pick what you think is best for you. We're going to do our best to drive value to your pocket, right? With good risk reward opportunities. And we're going to keep doing that every day in a digitally native experience with transparency and ease of use. That's the focus and all the things that you would expect to come with it should come with it. So the reporting, the transparency, the tax advantages, the distributions, having a digital wallet, like all that stuff that you and I haven't really spoken about, that's the totality of the experience that we want to create for you and that we have. I'm glad you mentioned the transparency because I was really impressed with the language on the website and and how transparent it seems to be. There were some like there was some nomenclature on that I was curious about with some of the investments like you would be paid out a target quote unquote interest payment or that the fund expects to pay you back your principal at the end. Is this just regulatory jargon or is it just alluding to inherent risk that may be less obvious to the unsophisticated investor? I think that we live in a world that's highly regulated with a very high bar of compliance. And so different organizations take a different approach into how they feel about communicating some of these things. And so, for example, if we invest in a loan that's paying 12%, you know, we should just be able to say, hey, you'll get 12%. Reality is like, you might not, there might be a default, there might be another issue and may not perform. And so some platforms will say like, hey, we're not going to get so technical. And if it's 12%, it's 12%. Like you obviously know it might not, it's not guaranteed. So like that's on you. I would say our perspective has always been far more cautious. It's just we're much more, I think we behave much more institutional than I think you would see other platforms. I think some other platforms are all about the sell and we're all about the buy, meaning we don't push products on our, on our customers. We push content, we push education, we push transparency and we push high value product and then we stop. And now it's on you, Trey, to read it and say like, hey, do I feel that this is right for me and can I make that decision? I think that in some ways that manifests itself in sounding like a little overly complex or like a little weird English that I don't particularly love, but it's trying to live within those lines, right? It's like target return. Like, yeah, the rest of the whole presentation says it's 12%, but like we're hedging that risk and being super transparent or like you could expect payments quarterly, hopefully. Like it pays quarterly, you should be fine, right? And so I think we're trying to solve for A, how do we use nomenclature language in a way that you like Say, hey, this sounds normal and like I understand it, versus like, how do we be really thoughtful around how we are talking about different attributes of a transaction without making it feel like we're promising or committing to certain things? Where do you see the tech of 
yield streak going? It's obviously an amazing web platform. Is there going to be an app where these deals are just as easy as something like some of these brokerage exchanges that you have on your phone? I think we're actually one of the first platforms to have an app. We've had it for a couple of years now. The coolest thing is the first investment made on the app was actually in the, little, in the middle of Lake Michigan. We thought it was like fraud. So we reached out to the guy and we're like, hey, did you make an investment? He's like, yeah, why? We're like, well, we're seeing it in the middle of Lake Michigan. He's like, yeah, it's amazing. I'm out with my grandson fishing. And I was like, this is everything I ever dreamt of, right? And so, yes, we have an app. The app is amazing. I use the app all the time. That's primarily how I'm investing on Yield Street is through the app. The app is everything that you would expect it to be and, and more. To your first part of the question, which is like, where are we going? I think the best way to give you a view into where we're going is to say, go to Yield Street's website, look at the resources. Melinda and I published a founder's blog, a brief letter post Series C about, hey, why do we raise this money? Where are we going? What's this all about? And in conjunction with that, we put together a video that would really show you a day in the life in Yield Street in two or three years. So we had a video created with all the functionality that we got excited about, real liquidity, secondary market, international, right? Technology transcends borders and currency. Advice, goal setting, like, hey, I want to invest for my kid's college. Like, what is that? How do I do that? And so really changing the way you think about money. I think if you go click on that video, you'll see a day in the life of, uh, of a Yield Street user in two or three years. Do you ever foresee the alt offerings incorporating something like NFTs or even crypto or other currencies? Yeah, absolutely. So um, crypto is on the pipeline. I think you're going to see that a lot sooner than, than you think. So that's certain. I think for us, we're five years into a 15-year journey, right? I think it's going to be a lifelong journey, but I would say until like, I have the totality of the experience and the markets are always evolving. So like stepping back to one of the things we spoke about earlier, as a CIO, my role is to say, hey, I have this ever-growing community who wants to build a holistic portfolio. I need to constantly be looking at the market and understand, provide them so that they could do a better job at creating the, the portfolio that's best for them in a diversified fashion. And so we're always going to be introducing new products over time. The Yield Street's value is not a function of, of what we sell. Rather, it's how we sell, to whom we sell, and our ability to sell. Right? It's leveraging the most efficient technology in the world with this incredible audience and bringing those together to create that flywheel. Like to us, that's the holy grail of what we're building is creating that experience for you, the customer. And so in some ways, any asset that has the right risk return profile and that's right for our investor base is in play. Five years. That is really impressive. How big is Yield Street now? How many employees are you now? We're about 110 employees. I think we have 30 jobs open looking for awesome people that are passionate about really democratizing access to these types of products, looking for people that get passionate about, as crazy as it sounds, like changing people's lives, like giving them a better financial future, like just jacks me up like crazy and just want people that are excited about that mission, looking for people that get invigorated by a big mission, that are smart, that are excited about building and about being impactful in a smaller company. That's where we are. Where does Michael invest on Yield Street? I mean, you've got, they've built this machine. It's almost a scratch your own itch endeavor. You have certain interests in commercial real estate and legal. Like what products pop up for you that you're like, I'm, I'm in on this? Let's see. 
So, I mean, the first answer while my investments are coming up is I'm looking for a diversified portfolio, right? So I'm investing across the board at Yield Street. So I have 29 active investments right now at Yield Street. And that'll range from short-term notes, if I'm not sure exactly you know, where I want to put certain cash or if I'm waiting for more diversification or more product to the different funds that we spoke. I mean, at 29 investments, I'm pretty heavily diversified. You're seeing me in everything from art to shipping, to structured notes, to single family rentals, to legal supply chain. My goal is to be as diversified as possible and to be thematic in nature and to build a rolling portfolio. So if you look at like my durations, I have things that are like maturing in a month or two to let's say the aviation fund that's like, you know, long duration private equity fund. And so until we build the full-blown secondary market where there's always real-time liquidity, I want to know that across my portfolio, there's going to be moments of liquidity over time. And you know, hopefully each of those moments, I'm like, okay, I'm good. I don't need the liquidity. Boom, I reinvest. And so I'm constantly re-engaging with Street. And as Street continues to expand what it offers, then I keep investing more. And so where we started this entire conversation about an hour ago, I told you that the reason I started Yieldstreet, in other words, is for super selfish reasons, because I needed this, right? And my friends needed it. And so here I am continuing to build Yieldstreet for the things that the people I love and care about need. And that universe just expanded to millions of people who share the same pain. And so you're going to see me doing the same things that you know I think most other people are going to do at Yieldstreet. How did those 29 investments relate to your overall portfolio allocation? Are you getting up into that 50% in alts kind of range, like some of the hedge funds you mentioned earlier? Is it a smaller allocation and the rest is over in something like equities? So given my background and given sort of where I traffic as a career, I would say that I've been fortunate to have a lot more access than most, right? Which is kind of how I figured out that, hey, like, so one story goes, I asked, you know, my old buddy is like, we have like five of us who are been close since like elementary high school. And I'm like, guys, like, this is amazing. What are you investing in? It's like circa 2010. And like, they gave me like the typical answers. And I literally looked at them and I'm like, you guys are missing the boat. Like I'm crushing it on legal finance or on this. Like you guys should come in. And they're like, oh, okay. Like we'll give you five grand. And I was like, wait, what? Like, I, I can't do that. And I sort of forgot that in many ways, like doctors and lawyers like doing their thing. And I'm working for a number of years and got super lucky and fortunate to have the experience that I had. And so I started to really realize sort of where the access issue was. So for me, I've been really heavily invested in alts for a long time because I understand it really well and because I feel comfortable that I impact many of my investments. What's changed over the years for me is a migration of investing with others to putting more and more on Street because Street's offering more of those solutions. And so I think you're seeing that happen across the board where people are saying, hey, if it's just real estate and art and shipping, like it's X percent of my portfolio. Wait, now I could do like other managers. Okay. That's like another five or 10% of my portfolio because I get diversification by them. Wait, now it's structured notes. So I don't have to buy it through some intermediary. Okay. Like there's another 5%. And so what Yield Street's message is very different than what most sort of people advisors have been telling you always, which is like their message is like, give me more money. Our message is like, we're giving you more products you decide if, if you want to invest more. And naturally they do. They're like, hey, I keep getting more diversified. And so the short answer is, as we keep in bringing more products to the site, you're seeing someone like my portfolio move higher and higher 
on concentration to putting it at Yield Street because it's not Yield Street that I'm taking risk in. It's understanding that Yield Street's bringing all these other platforms for bringing your product. And so I feel really comfortable continuing to expand the share of wallet that, that I'm bringing to Yield Street. And given that you're now a successful entrepreneur, we have a lot of entrepreneurs in our audience. I'm curious, any takeaway you can leave for them on the fundraising side, on, on having a hundred plus employee side? Like, What's been your biggest learning that you think our audience could take away from? You're putting me on the spot. So I'm going to say three things that are top of mind to me. I think like that's an awesome, awesome conversation to have. The three things I would say is you, you asked me essentially two and a half questions. One was like, you know, some tips on fundraising. And the others was, you know, about scaling to a business with this many employees and more. On fundraising, I think the best advice you can think about is how do I shorten my story and make it more crisp? Better the storyteller, the more capital you'll get every day. Like look at the people who you think are the best. If it's Steve Jobs, if it's Jeff Bezos, like their art was telling the world a story and a vision and keeping it really simple. And it allowed them to build businesses losing money for very, very, very long periods of time, right? And so the value of your business should not be projected in how complex or how different it is. It should be projected in how simple it is to understand what you're trying to build. That's one. Two is as you grow a business, you individually need to grow with it. And so as an individual, I'm constantly a growth seeker looking to improve and looking to grow because I understand that the organization needs more from me and needs differently from me. What I provided the organization, what I did to the organization day to day in 2016 or 17 is completely different than what I do for the organization today. And so understanding that we individually are on a journey ourselves and we need to keep up with the pace of the business. In many ways, you hear people saying like, oh, John was great for us from series A to B, but not from B to C. Yeah, well, what about Michael? Like, are you stepping up too? And so you need to be really relentlessly self-aware of where you are vis-a-vis -vis what the organization needs and get yourself a coach or read or find a way to constantly be growing. And the third is, as you grow, in order to build something amazing, you need to bring in a lot of different people with different skill sets. Different people with different skill sets mean different working styles. If you seek to duplicate yourself over and over, only so far could you ever get. What that means is that now you have this new person coming in with a whole different way of working and a whole different attitude. The goal isn't for you or that person to change and become amenable to the other because I do best working the way I work and you do best working the way you. And so you can't change just to bend to me because I'm the founder and I can't change just to bend to you because I need you to manage a group. So the question that we have to sit down and talk about is like, what are my core competencies and characteristics and how I work and what are yours? Where do we butt heads? And let's understand like how we work together best. Like what's the mode of communication that we need to make sure we're constantly focused on so that we as a team are most effective. I think if you, if you keep those three things in mind, being super crisp on your vision, recognizing that you have to always be growing as an individual and always being mindful that different people operate at peak efficiency in a different way. And we need to figure out how to work together. That to me is maybe three good takeaways for, for this webinar. I think that's brilliant. Michael, thank you so much for your time. Before I let you go, I just want to give you an opportunity to hand off to our audience where they can learn more about Yield Street, where they can follow you and your other endeavors. 
You can follow my professional endeavors on LinkedIn and maybe uh, from time to time, some passionate spew of something. Twitter, I'm still trying to get the hang of. And these days, it seems like competition is fierce. People have completely figured out how to be brilliant in so few words, but I'm working on my game. So definitely follow me there. Some of my more personal moments are, are going to be found on Instagram, but uh, I would definitely tell you LinkedIn and, and Twitter are, are your places to, to spend time with me. Yield Street app is amazing. It's going to do a lot of what we spoke about and uh, follow Yield Street on social. It's A, super fun and creative. Sometimes I can't believe the things they post and B, super informative. Michael, this is fantastic. I learned so much. I can't wait to do this again sometime. Thank you again for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me and have a great day. Appreciate it. All right, everybody. That's all we had for you this week. If you're loving the show, please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app. Make sure you're getting these episodes automatically downloading every week. And while you're at it, be sure to leave us a review so we know how much you love the show. You can also reach me on Twitter at Trey Lockerbie. And you can always go to theinvestorspodcast.com for a lot more information for courses, for tools, and other episodes that we offer. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network and learn how to achieve financial independence. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.